It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Hey, Fidelity. How can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Our next guest went from being flat broke to writing a memoir that sold millions. And then Reese Witherspoon was nominated for an Oscar for playing her in a movie. Now, how wild is that, I gotta say. And I still marvel when I think of Cheryl Strait walking alone through the Pacific Coast Mountains for three months. And I imagine myself doing it sometimes when I'm walking my dogs. I'm about 200 feet from the house with the flashlight. And then sometimes I cover the flashlight and I pretend I'm on the Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> then I look around, I see the lights of the house, and I realize I'm not. I don't know how she did that. Her new best-selling book is called, I love this book so much, I've, I've just bought this book for everybody I know. Uh, I bought it for all of my girls uh, from South Africa. I've given it to everybody for Christmas. It's called Brave Enough, Brave Enough. And one of my favorite quotes is on page 58, in case you have it. And this is what it says. I give this to all my friends who are going through divorce, who are going through challenging times, but this is my favorite quote from Cheryl. It says, you let time pass. That's the cure. You survive the days. You, you float like a rabbit ghost through the weeks. You cry and you wallow and you lament and you scratch your way back up through the months. And then one day, you find yourself alone on a bench in the sun, and you close your eyes, and you lean your head back, and you realize you're okay. That's Cheryl Strait from Brave Enough. Her session today is called The Humble Journey to Greatness. Cheryl Strait. <laughs> stay standing. If you're, if you're already standing, stay standing. If you can't stand, stay seated. But I want you to reach as high as you can, okay? Reach really high. 
until it like hurts, and then go another inch, and then let go, and sit down. <laughs> I thought it a good idea to start the morning off with a bit of yoga. When I was four, my mother enrolled me in a yoga class, which was a kind of unorthodox thing to do. It was 1972 or 73, and so not many people were yet doing yoga. But me, I just want to tell you, at age four, I was doing yoga. There was this wonderful、um, teacher who wanted to share her love of yoga with a bunch of three and four-year-olds. And the great thing about being three or four when you do yoga is you can reach pretty much anything. <laughs> there, there are parts that I haven't been able to reach, you know, since then. But、um, the, the, the downside is you don't have the fine motor skills or the, the motor skills that it takes, of course, to balance. And so the yoga teacher was always in these beautiful poses, you know, from her like eagle position or whatever. She would.、Um, Look around the room, and what she'd see is a classroom of people who didn't look like her.、Um, and I just want to say, for the record, this remains true in my experience of yoga. I never, I never looked like that teacher.、Um, but then, you know, we would be in all of these crazy poses, and the teacher said something that I never forgot. She would say to us, "The goal is not to attain the perfect pose. The goal is to reach for it." And it took me, honestly, decades. To understand what that really meant, what you know, to really know it in my bones, the way that we come to know true things in our bones, but it speaks very directly to what I want to talk to you about today, and that is the role of humility in our paths to greatness. I really think that so often, you know, my my sort of grandiose title, the that humble. The humble path, journey to greatness. I really think that so often we forget when we talk about doing our best and being great. We're we're aiming high. We're shooting for the stars. We're dreaming big, and all of that is sort of rooted in an idea of confidence, of winning. These are ideas that are really prevalent in our culture, and they're really prevalent. You know, obviously, some of the messages that you're going to hear here today, messages you've already heard, really in the self-help movement, and I think that those.、Um, Are incredibly important messages, but what I want to talk about is how sometimes we need to embrace the opposite idea than the one we already had in order to actually make those dreams come true. Those words, humility and greatness, mean totally different things. To be humble, it comes from the Latin humus. It means to be of the earth. It means to be down low. And of course, greatness is all about being up here. It's about you know when we hold somebody in high esteem, they're great, and so those things that can seem like a contradiction,、um, sometimes we we disregard them, and、um, you know I certainly don't want to say that greatness should be disregarded, but what I'm going to bring forward is humility. Th- those messages about aiming high and dreaming big, I really credit them so much for all many of the good things in my life, but along the path I did have to learn how to embrace that other thing. That what it meant to be down on that the ground. A couple of years after my yoga class, I learned how to read, and this was probably for all of you when that day you learned how to read, or that that sort of era of your life when you learned how to read, a really life-changing time. It was a deeply life-changing time for me because, of course, it awakened me to the path that I'd eventually take to become a writer. I remember very clearly. Having what I think of as an epiphany when I first had that first contact with 
creative work, with the kind of, by which I mean that kind of work where writers are not just using writing to explain things but, or, or, or instruct, but actually using writing to uh, illuminate the truths of the world, to paint pictures, to give us images, to tell us stories. And I remember thinking, being pierced by the kind of beauty and sorrow that writers made on the page and, and made in my heart. And I remember thinking that I wanted to be somebody who did that for other people. I wanted to be somebody who made beauty and sorrow in other people's hearts. And I didn't, at the time, I wasn't living the life that, that, that one would expect that um, would grow a writer. I didn't even know, frankly, uh, uh, that, that writers existed in the world or that somebody like me could be one. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. When I learned how to read, I was living with my mother, who was a single mom. She had just recently left my father, who was abusive to her and violent. I'd had a very difficult and tumultuous first six or seven years of my life. And she just bravely left him. And um, we were living you know, in, in apartment buildings. My brother and sister and I and my mom um, were single moms lived. And my mom worked as a waitress. And she worked in a factory. And that, that sort of yoga class aside, I wasn't um, I, I didn't have that kind of childhood of opportunity where my mom was signing me up for classes or saying, gee, you're interested in, in writing. Let's, let's you know, hook you up with um, other people who are doing that. So I really had to find my way, and I did. And I did it thanks to those kind of narratives of greatness, that aiming high, that dreaming big. I was always wildly, almost embarrass embarrassingly, almost arrogantly ambitious. Um, when the first thing when I was like four and people asked me, you know, what do you want to be? I would just be like the first woman president of the United States. <laughs> so I, I sort of started high. We're still working on that, aren't we? Um, maybe I will be after all. Um, depends how things turn out. <laughs> I, I actually, I'm here to announce my candidacy. <laughs> 
But what happened is I, you know, went off to college, and by age 19, I was paying my way through college, and I was really, um, you know, very directed. And if you'd met me when I was 19, I would have told you not just that I was a writer, but that my intention was to, to write the great American novel. And everything I worked on, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be um, writing the best novel that had ever been written. Now, even, even then, you know, I didn't think that I would necessarily do that, but that was the bar that I set. That's what I was shooting for. And in retrospect, you know, I think that that absolutely served me, because those of you who've read my work and who are familiar with parts of my life story know that um, when I was a senior in college, my mom died. She died very suddenly at the age of 45 of cancer. And I was an orphan, and I didn't have anyone saying to me that they believed in me or that I should do this or that or I had to fulfill these dreams. I had to really propel um, you know, my own engine. And it was those big dreams of greatness that pushed me. And they pushed me even in those hard times that the world has become familiar with now, that decade of my 20s that was full of struggle and strife and, and mistakes and things that really you would think weren't conducive um, to writing the great American novel, and I'm here to tell you they were not. Um, but I'm also here to tell you that I never lost my writing. In the hardest of times, I held on to my writing. My writing, I always think of it as the one unbroken thread of my life. It's the thing that has always been there for me. It has always been true, and I think it always will be true. And so I waited tables, and I wrote. And I went hiking, and I wrote. And I landed on the doorstep of 30, and I hadn't um, published a novel, much to my surprise. Partly because I hadn't started one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just a little detail there. I'd written a lot of pages. I'd written, and I'd written, and I'd written, and I'd written, I'd written. And I didn't understand that a bunch of pages didn't stack up to be a novel. Um, I teach writing sometimes, and my students are sometimes also sad to hear that um, when they come to me with their pages. You know, there's a, a book takes a greater sense of concentration. And I decided to go to graduate school. One of the wonderful things about um, many, pro, many, many MFA programs in creative writing in the U.S., they offer, a, you know, they, get, they just let in a few students, and they offer you full tuition, remission, and a fellowship. And so I applied to grad school, and I went to Syracuse University, and I spent about two and a half years um, working really hard on my novel, what became my first novel, Torch. And I finished that program. It was about, my novel was about a half to two-thirds done. And I was really, you know, stepping back into real life um, with a master's degree in fine arts, which sounds very highfalutin, but if you know anything about the writing life, what it meant is I was going to go back and be a waitress. Um, and, and I didn't want to do that, because what I was afraid of is that this big dream was finally in my hands, right? I was almost there. I had so much momentum. I was writing this book, and I didn't want to have to go back to this working life and then put that novel on the sidelines again and, and maybe never um, finish it. And so I, I, my husband and I talked, my wonderfully supportive husband who's here today. Um, we talked, and we decided he's a documentary filmmaker, um, which is kind of like being a poet in America um, in terms of financial stability. Um, <laughs> we love them, we need them, we do not pay them. Um, so, so 
it was a big deal that I was saying I don't want to go uh, work, and I was losing my fellowship. But you know, he's always been so on my side that we cooked up a scheme together. We decided that I would not take a, do- a job for the like the year after graduate school, so I could finish my book, and we would go into credit card debt um, for my portion of the income. Now, I am not a financial advisor. So you can either take or ignore my advice at your own peril, okay? Um, but we, so we decided to do this. And at the time, my husband had, go, had gotten a job at um, this place, in, and it required us to move to this little town called Sheffield, Massachusetts. And we rented this little cottage on a pond, and it was perfect because I didn't know anybody, and my husband was going to be leaving the house for at least eight hours every day. And I was going to sit down and write not just the great American novel, the best novel that had ever been written, or I was going to try to, to finish that. So we did, and um, he went off you know, to work. What happened, what, another thing that coincided with this moment of our lives is that we decided that we would try to start thinking about trying to conceive a baby, and that also we got cable television. <laughs> um, we had never, I had hardly even ever had a TV. And some of you might be aware that I learned really quickly when we got cable, there is a lot of stuff to watch. <laughs> and so my husband went off to work the first day, and I, and I, op- I sit down on my computer, and I'm going to write the great book. And, um, and so the TV is just calling me, you know? And I, it almost seemed, you know, like it, it almost, like... it seemed like a vast mistake to ignore all of those things that might be available to me. And so what I did is I turned on the TV, and I found a show pretty quickly called Baby Story. I don't know if any of you have seen this show. I don't know if it's still on. Um, but I was, I, it's, what it, it's a reality show, and each episode you follow a woman through her pregnancy and, and the birth of her baby. And they always do two episodes back to back. And I was like, well, it would be irresponsible to have a baby without watching Baby Story. <laughs> like, it's, it's like research, right? And so I was watching that, and then there was a show that came on before Baby Story that was like following somebody through their wedding planning, and. And then afterwards, it was like people renovating the, a room in their house. And it, it just seemed like, you know, an education. So I was, <laughs> so I was watching. And, and, and then I would write, like, I, you know, those shows would end. And then I'd realize my husband was going to come home. And I would quickly sit down on my computer and try to write. And, but those days stacked up on each other. And I felt horrible. My heart just sunk. Because I knew what I was doing is, was squandering um, this really important moment in my life. And I was, I was, you know, not doing what I intended to do. I was doing the opposite. I was saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to do this thing. Everyone who knew me and loved me would say, yeah, Cheryl's a writer. And there I was alone in my house, and I had to ask myself those hard questions and realized that maybe I'd been lying to myself all along. Maybe I didn't want to write a novel. Maybe it wasn't my calling. Maybe that thing that I felt in my heart when I was six was just, you know, some sort of childhood fantasy. And maybe, you know, that all that work I'd done was for absolutely nothing. It really hurt to ask those questions because, of course, the minute I asked them what I knew is that it wasn't true that I didn't want to be a writer. I did want to be a writer. It wasn't true that I wasn't called 
to be a writer. It wasn't true that this isn't what I intended. And once I understood that, that was even more painful. Because, because the deal is, if, if I wanted to be a writer and then wasn't being it, what was true is that I was just failing at it. It wasn't like, oh, you just need to change course. This was the wrong thing. It was, you are a failure. I had my dream in my grasp, and I was too weak to hold it. It was too hard. It was too big. I was too... I don't know what. I was too much of a failure to see it through. What happens when we do that? What happens when we don't act upon our most important intentions? What do we do when we say one thing and then we do another? What do you do, what do, you do if you've aimed so high and aspire to be the best and all of that stuff that I was doing and realize that you just, you're, you can't, you're a failure? What happens when we have only ourselves to blame? That was it for me. It was just me and me. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The great writer Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite quotes, wrote this. To know oneself is above all to know what one lacks. It is to measure oneself against truth, not the other way around. The first product of self-knowledge is humility. So in that cottage in the town of Sheffield, Massachusetts, when I was 33 years old and supposed to be writing the great American novel, I had that moment where I made a hard stop at humility. I've been on a lot of journeys. I've written about some of them. I've had hard, difficult travels and adventures and struggles and toenails falling off and, and all of those things. But I'm here to tell you, it seems strange, but it's true, that one of the hardest journeys of my life was that one I was taking alone in that house when I was battling between my biggest dreams and some silly reality TV shows. It was my moment of truth. And I think it's a moment, I mean, I don't think, I know it's a moment that everyone in this room has had to have maybe a few times over the course of your life. Um, and if you haven't had to have that moment yet, it's coming. Um, <laughs> and that is when you have to ask yourself, you know, not, not who you aspire to be, but to reckon with who you actually turn out to be, who you actually are. And what I realized, what humility taught me, is that I couldn't any longer adhere to the narratives that had gotten me this far. I had to relinquish all of those anthems of greatness and dreaming big and aiming high, all of those beautiful, powerful, important things that had really gotten me there. They weren't serving me anymore. And so, I had to come up with something that would. I knew I was going to fall short of greatness. So I had to rewrite the story of what greatness was. I had to figure out how to measure success differently. And I also had to 
figure out what purpose dreams served, if they served him at all. Maybe, maybe part of what you know, was getting in my way was my very, those very dreams. Um, the title, if I, my talk had a subtitle. This was actually going to be the title. Don't let your dreams ruin your life. That was going to be the t title of this talk, but I thought it would be too depressing. <laughs> so we got the humble journey to greatness. But the real message is don't let your dreams ruin your life. <laughs> That was the, that truth that rose up at my humblest, lowest moment was basically that I had to write a book. And that was it. It, it was forget the greatness, forget the who was going to, forget, forget if anyone would even read it. I had to write a book. And I had to surrender to the idea of my own mediocrity. I had to, to, to really just go, hello, mediocre person who's sitting alone in no cottage and writing a book. Nice to know you. I've, you know, spent 33 years in your company, and we're going to now get to work. In short, I had to finally believe what that yoga teacher taught me, you know, like 30 years before. Do you ever get that, like a voice of truth that then, you know, it's like years and years, and finally you're like, oh, yeah, I should have listened to that. Everyone in the room who's a mother is like, see, yeah, someday. Um, and I, and I had to say, okay, the point isn't about holding the perfect pose. It's, it's about reaching for it. So I made you reach up there. Just to remember what it feels like to reach. I think every day, remember what it feels like to reach. Don't remember what it feels like to be perfect, because none of you have been there. And if you have, I, we don't want to know you. <laughs> so I decided to write the only book I could possibly write. And whether that was a bad book, or a good book, or a terrible book, that was not my business. My business was making good on my intentions. And that is your business, too. Every single one of you in the room. And that calling to make good on your intentions, it translates across profession. This isn't just about writing a novel, or, you know, it's not about an artistic career. It's about who we are as parents, as partners, as citizens, who we are in, in, alone with ourselves. What is this, you know, it's, it's about saying, I'm no longer going to say I'm something and be another. Right? It's also saying, what are those goals I set way too high to reach? Those goals don't serve you. Make your goals down here so you can grab them when you need them, right? If I printed a bumper sticker, which I'm not going to do, so if one of you guys is a bumper sticker maker, feel free to use it, um, it would say, surrender to your own mediocrity. Which, again, it seems like a sentiment that's counter to, to everyone who's ever sort of tried to make you feel good and okay and, and all that stuff. It seems counter to that. But I actually think that surrender to your own mediocrity speaks exactly to the heart of what that really means. Okay? And part of, what, part of being evolved is having the capacity to hold, true, to hold two opposing truths in one hand and recognizing the truth of each and understanding how they serve each other. When you surrender to your own me mediocrity, what you're doing is humbly acknowledging that the very, very best thing that you have to give us is only what you have to offer, okay? It's what you already have. It's what you already hold. It's about learning how to, to, to put it out into the world in a way that you absolutely are the most original master of, of that endeavor, okay? It's about 
not paying attention to anyone else's script of success or goodness. It's about singing with your own voice. And the word for that is greatness. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Cheryl Strayed. What a wild talk. I love you, baby. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.